When was the last time, married folks, you stopped and looked at your wedding album? And you paged through some of those old styles. My dad had a red maroon tuxedo. That was popular in the 70s, I guess, they tell me. Uh, and um, uh, you, you can look back and see the, the groomsmen, the bridesmaids, that maybe you still kept in contact with. I don't know. Maybe you didn't. Uh, you can see the family and friends that were gathered there on that special day. And you can look at each other and uh, the, the sparkles in your eyes as you uh, said your vows that day. But why are weddings so important? Weddings are important because the idea of a wedding is it's supposed to occur once, right? It's a once, one-time thing. And uh, why are births so important? They're so important because they're supposed to be a one-time thing. You're not born again physically. Uh, don't push back on me with the spiritual part there. But you're only born once physically into this world. There's something special about one-time happenings. And our passage this morning, the writer of Hebrews shows the uniqueness of Christ's one-time offering is one-time gift. And let's just look through the album here, so to speak, of this one-time sacrifice. I'd like to give you a message this morning. This is part three of our series in chapter 8 through 10 of Hebrews called A New and Living Way, under the, living under the new covenant called Necessary Blood. Necessary Blood. I want you to see this morning that there is, as I jump ahead to the slides here, there is no new and living way, there is no new covenant and a covenant of God that we live through without, first of all, Messiah's bloodshed, Messiah's appearance, and our Messiah's return in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28. Before we jump into that, I want you to... I get the big picture, and sometimes as we preach passage by passage and chunk by chunk through the New Testament, you might lose some of the big picture here. And the writer of Hebrews here has given us this big picture of the new covenant and Jesus' relationship to it. If you turn over with me to chapter 7 and verse 22, he has uh, introduced it. And sometimes you'll see the word covenant translated as testament. Um, it can also be translated in, uh, uh, as, as, as a promises, covenant, uh, testament. Also, we'll look today in chapter 9 and see it translated with the idea of a will. A will. But chapter 7, verse 22, he introduced us to this and said, By so much was Jesus made a surety or a guarantee of a better testament. It's the word diatheke. It's the word covenant. A better covenant. Better covenant than what? Than what was previous, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, life under Moses' law. Go with me to chapter 8, verse 6, and chapter 80 gives an exposition of the New Covenant, superiority to the Old, and he says, 8, 6, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator, the intercessor, the go-between, of a better covenant, which is established upon better promises. So he brings us out again. We're talking about something new that didn't exist in the Old Testament. Chapter 8, verse 13. After he quotes Jeremiah with, uh, with the description of the new covenant, in verse 13, 8, 13, he says, And that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. 
Now that which decayeth and waxeth old, that which is, is, is old, it's, out, it, 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 it's falling apart, it, it, it's, it's going away, he says, is ready to vanish away. In other words, the old covenant is made obsolete. Obsolete. Then, in chapter 9, where we are this, this morning, verses 11 through 15, he reiterates this truth of this new covenant that is an eternal covenant. There is no covenant after this one. It's not like the old covenant and then there was something new and now we're in this one and then there's going to be a new... No, this is it. A new covenant. In chapter 9, verse 11 through 15, he says this, But Christ, being come in high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, remember the tabernacle in the old covenant and the rituals that went on there, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once unto the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offer himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And get this, here's verse 15. This is, this is kind of the summary statement that's going to open up the rest of the passage in Hebrews 9. So pay close attention. And for this cause, everything he said there in verse 11 through 15, the cause of the new covenant, for, for this cause of, 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 of um, purging your conscience to serve the living God, for this cause, He, Jesus, is the mediator of the New Testament, the new covenant. That by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For this reason, Christ is better, he says. For this reason. For this reason, Christ is superior. The true reality that the Old Testament worship looked and pointed toward and was a shadow of is here in Jesus. And this morning, I'd like you, if somehow possible, to put yourselves in the Israelite or Jewish person's shoes or sandals in that day and their expectations of what the Messiah was to be and what he was going to do. See, they understood that the Old Testament taught that the Messiah was, would come as a conquering king who would deliver them. And Israelites had been in captivity many years under other uh, uh, oppressive empires. Because of their sin, God allowed that to happen. But they looked forward to that future hope of a, a Messiah who would be king and, and, and things would be restored and peace would be made and Israel again would be the center focus here of, of God's work. And so when Jesus came, when Jesus didn't set up his earthly kingdom, and then Jesus died. And he claimed to be the Messiah. It was hard for them to wrestle with. Because they had missed the parts. In Isaiah 53 that says he's going to be despised and rejected of men. He's going to bear sin. He's going to be wounded for your transgressions. It was hard for them to swallow. And so Jesus dies on the cross as the Messiah. Proves himself to be the Messiah through his signs and miracles. Through his teaching. Through his baptism. God's affirmation. Resurrected. His sacrifice accepted. 
And some of these Jewish people had their eyes open and saw that Jesus was the Messiah. But now, things are getting difficult for them. They're facing increased persecution. Some of them are having their goods plundered, their houses broken into, because they are believers. Maybe even by their own people, who still uh, uh, follow the old system. And they are tempted to say, this is not worth it, this is too hard, I'm going back. And why did a Messiah have to die anyway? And Hebrews 9 is written to answer that question. Why he had to die. For this reason. Why he is superior. Why Jesus the Messiah had to die. They had to wrestle with those truths. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 9 verses 15 through 28 here. Um, There's not many french fries here, but there's a lot of meat. And uh, if you came here for french fries, uh, french fries are good, but they make you fat and they don't fill you up. Meat fills you up. And uh, the author here has has given us a lot of meat. And so we're going to have to think here this morning. As we set up this passage, it becomes very clear from uh, chapter 9 and verse 15. At the point of this section is that there is no new and living way to God. There is no new covenant. There is no new and living way to live under God without Messiah as our mediator, as our go-between, as our intercessor, as our reconciler between God and man. In other words, there are no blessings of a promised new inheritance without the death of Christ, Christ's work. So that's the overall theme I want you to understand here this morning. Look in verse 15. We could spend all morning on this verse here. We're not going to. But look what it says. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that they were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Notice that phrase, by the means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that they which were under the first testament. For the redemption of transgressions. He's saying there that sin, your and I sin, and the Israelites sin under the old covenant, the old testament. Sin needs to be paid for. Sin cannot be brushed aside. There is always a penalty for sin. A judge would cease to be just if he just brushed the offenses of a criminal aside while the innocent one who was the victim sat there in awe, horror. And God is the infinite judge. He's the judge of all the earth. And Abraham said, shall not not the judge of all the earth do right? He is a God who is just and right without iniquity. Just and right is he, Moses said. Sins, our sins, our offenses against God needed to be paid for. And that payment is eternal separation from God, eternal death. Ultimately, in a destination called hell and torment, apart from God forever, upon which there is no relief and no release, but in this life as well, alienation, the Bible says, separation from the life of God in this life as well. Sin needs to be paid for. And the problem is you and I can't pay an infinite debt. And that is what the problem is. It is an infinite debt. 
There's nothing we can do that takes away our sin in and of ourselves. But because Jesus was the infinite God, He could pay the infinite payment of infinite death on the cross. Jesus fully obeyed all God had commanded perfectly, and He suffered our punishment in His place. So the verse says, this is the reason Jesus came, by means of death, for the redemption. That means buying back the redemption, paying what was necessary of the transgressions of sin. See, in the Old Testament, bulls and goats were sacrificed because of your sin, a blood sacrifice, and they were a means of forgiveness because they pointed to a true reality, a final sacrifice, but they were not the basis of forgiveness. They were a means of forgiveness, but not the basis of forgiveness. The blood of the sacrificial animals was pointing forward to a deeper truth still. That at the heart of this sacrificial system, underneath it all, was pointing to the self-giving love of God Himself and His Son. And you could look at these sacrifices in the Old Testament. He talks about the blood of bulls and goats as like a check. If I handed uh, my son Jace a check... Um, and, I, and I wrote an amount out on it that that check was worth. That check in and of itself is nothing. It's a piece of paper. Um, it represents something that would be the true reality in the bank. And these sacrifices, an Old Testament system, was like a check based on something that was the true and better in the bank that would happen Jesus, the sacrifice of God himself. Romans 3, 23 through 26 tells us how this new and living way, the death of Jesus, gives us a means of forgiveness and the basis of forgiveness. It gives us redemption of transgression. Listen to these verses in Romans 3 and verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's our problem. But here's the good news through faith in this truth. Being justified, declared righteous freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here's the basis for our redemption. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, that means satisfactory payment, through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission or taking away forgiveness of sins that are past through the forbearance of of God to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just. God is just. He must deal with sin. And he did. He paid it. And the justifier, God, is the one who declares those who put their faith in Jesus' work just. The justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Here you have sin fully vindicated. God can call the worst criminal who is found guilty innocent and virtuous upon their faith and repentance in Christ. It is only through Christ taking the punishment in their place and crediting all His virtue to that offender being made sin for us. The one who knew no sin so that we become the righteousness of God in Him. And that's the wonderful truth in Hebrews 9 and verse 15. 
for the redemption of the transgressions. But look at it. Else is in that verse there. He says that they which were that they which were under the first testament, they which are called, might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Might receive it. And this work was so powerful that it provides for eternity. For eternity. And so the question that's going to come up here in these next verses then is how did Jesus provide these things through his death? How did he provide? And the answer is through his death. How did all this, the redemption of transgressions and receiving the promise of eternal inheritance, uh, one, the the negative side, redemption of, of transgressions here, the positive side, receiving the promise of eternal inheritance. How does it all come? How does he provide these things? And the answer is through the death of Jesus. And I want us to see this morning, first of all, in verses 15 through 22, that there is no new and living way without Messiah's bloodshed. Without his bloodshed. The question may have come up in the Israelites' mind, but why did the Messiah have to die to provide those things? Why did he have to die to provide those things? And I'd like you to look in verse uh, 16. For where a testament is, and when you hear that word testament here, I just want you to think in modern day uh, language here, uh, a will, a will. For where a will or testament is, there must also necessity be the death of the testator. The testator is the will maker. I cannot go to my grandmother and say, all right, I'm ready for my inheritance now. That happens after she dies, right? Don't worry, it's not much. (laughs) The word for testament here is the same Greek word as will in the legal sense. Before somebody dies, they're supposed to make a will. It's a covenant, a promise of what's to happen with their assets, disposing of their assets as they please. And this legal document is binding. But it obviously does not come into effect. It's not supposed to come into effect until the death of the testator, the death of the willmaker. And so it's with, with, with courage here that the writer says that this new covenant itself also comes into effect upon the relevant death of the testator, the willmaker, who happens to be the Lord Jesus. The death of Jesus. And he's going to say, that's not so odd, Israelites, if you think about it here. And he's going to take them back to Moses. Look in verse 17. For a testament is a force. It's awakened. It's allowed. After men are dead. Otherwise it is no strength at all while the testator liveth. And he's going to say this. This is something you already know and we're a part of. Whereupon neither the first covenant, the first testament, was dedicated without blood. This is how the first covenant came into effect. For when Moses had spoken every precept, the law of God, the covenant of God, to all the people according to the law, what did he do? He took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. When God made his covenant with Israel, you're going to have to think back in Bible history, on Mount Sinai, Moses sprinkled the blood of the animals that were sacrificed, saying, You are enjoined to this covenant. 
So it was something they had already been a part of as Israelites. And that is how covenants were ratified. Covenants were made. Wills were given. Here in the covenant idea. Verse 21, Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Blood is a part of our, our covenant, he's saying. What is he, what is he what he's trying to get across? Well, because the promise of an inheritance requires the death of the willmaker, the testator, And that's what the Old Covenant, the Old Testament required. It shouldn't surprise the reader then that the New Covenant, the New and Living Way, requires the same. And if the New Covenant is superior to the Old Agreement, then the sacrifice should be a superior sacrifice as well. You follow me? This inheritance is an eternal inheritance. So this means that there needs to be an eternal sacrifice. And so there is no new and living way without the blood of Christ. Without the bloodshed of Messiah. Why? Because the bloodshed of Messiah, the payment of bloodshed, is required for forgiveness. Even under Moses' law, he says in verse 22, without the shedding of blood is no remission, no forgiveness. You can read that in Exodus chapter 24 and Leviticus. There is a payment required for forgiveness. And the new covenant provides forgiveness. Go to chapter 8 and verse 12. Quoting from Jeremiah, the description of the new covenant, he says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Does that sound like forgiveness? Yes, it is. And that's what the New Covenant provides. New Covenant provides. The blood of bulls and goats was a basis for forgiveness, or excuse me, was a means for forgiveness, like a check is a means of you transferring money, but it was not the basis. It was not what was in the bank. What was in the bank is Jesus' blood. Listen, there is no access to God apart from being washed in the blood of Jesus. None. Our sin condemns us, the Bible says. But faith in Christ's atoning sacrifice is the means by which that that transaction of Christ's purity is given. We can't make up for our impurity. There is an eternal gap. We cannot jump across the Grand Canyon. We must come on God's terms through Jesus' shed blood on our behalf. Through the payment, the atonement, the satisfactory payment for our sin. And God shows astounding grace and mercy in Christ to us through this. That's what verses 15 through 22 are about. There's no new and living way without Messiah's blood. And so we don't downplay Messiah's blood. We don't explain away the blood of Jesus. It was a bloody death, and it needed to be in our place. But secondly, the question arises, well, what did he do then that was so superior to the old way? Okay, so they both have blood. Why is this man's blood more special? than the blood of bulls and goats. Obviously, a man's blood is more special than bulls and goats. Why is this eternally special? 
And that's what he answers in verses 23 through 26. Look there. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens, the spiritual reality that all the Old Testament points to, should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, than these of blood and bulls and goats. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands. He did not enter into a physical tabernacle, a physical temple here in this earth, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he have often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Here's the point, number two. There is no new and living way without Messiah's appearance. And I don't mean his appearance on the earth, because we already talked about that as bloodshed. I mean that he appeared in heaven with his hands pierced, his blood shed before the presence of his Father for us. He appears before holy God with his own blood. And he is not continually offering a sacrifice for us, as some religions teach. But he has one time offered. And under Moses' law in the Old Covenant, if you look in verse 25, he says the high priest enters often. And he enters with the blood of others. But look verse 26. But Christ once, by the sacrifice, not of others, but of himself. You see, it was a single sacrifice. And his payment was presented in heaven. The very presence of God, verse 24. To appear in the presence of God for us. The very presence of God, the holy, pure sacrifice accepted by His Father. It covered our sin once and for all. It carried it away. It buried it. And God does not hold that against His children. That's the beauty of the Gospel. But look at that last phrase in verse 24. For us. Two little words with so much meaning. For us. He opened the holy presence of God, the new and living way to us, so that God Himself dwells in me and makes us His holy temple of dwelling. He lives inside me because God sees me since I trust in His finished work. God sees me as pure, undefiled, clean, holy. I'm His treasured possession, His unique people, because I am in Christ and Christ is in me. For us. And there's no new and living way without Messiah's appearance in heaven. Verse 27, though, tells us what our biggest problem is. Verse 27 says, And as it had pointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. I'm going to pause there, because we usually kind of pull that verse aside and and leave it at that. There's a whole sentence and thought that needs to be continued there. But I'm going to stop right there for a second because that tells us our biggest problem is that when we die, statistics are 10 out of 10 of us do, right? We will 
stand before the face of the judge, God himself. And we will face the sentencing, sentencing of God for our sins apart from Christ. And that's described in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11 through 15. It's a fearful scene and it's true. Revelation 20, verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. There was no place to hide. There will be a day when we will stand before God, and we cannot hide in the corner. Or we cannot hide behind our spouse. Or we cannot hide behind our mom or dad. Our grandmothers or our grandpas. And we cannot hide behind our social status. Verse 12. I saw the dead small and great. The Donald Trumps. The Hillary Clintons. The guy on the, on the gutter in the street pushing the shopping cart down the street. We'll stand shoulder to shoulder before the face of God. Stand before God. And the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of fire, the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now folks, if we are all judged according to our works, we fail. I don't care how good of a person you think you are. It does not erase your sin debt against God. But here's the good news. Those who have fully relied on Christ's work and got out of the chair of their own self-righteousness in the Christ's work are relying on the work of another. And only Christ's work is enough to make us pass that test of examination. And so a verse like Hebrews 9.27 that reminds us that we have an inevitable appointment that none of us is going to get an excuse from or a pass from. can be a joyful day and not one of grief that ends in everlasting torment. Look what he says in Hebrews chapter 9, again in verse 27, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Do you understand what this is saying? Your problem is that you're going to die and face judgment in your sin. You can't ignore that train coming as you stand in the, in the tracks. You can't push it away. You can pretend it away. You can't change the reality of it. That's our biggest problem, isn't it? He's a more powerful answer than even that. Just as you're going to die once, Jesus died once. And that's enough. As it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ, the Messiah, was once offered to bear the sins of many. 
He didn't just die in my place. He didn't just die in my and your place. He died for the sins of many, the Bible says. His work is powerful. It's done. He offered Himself. God gave the fullness of God Himself in our place. Infinite, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, pure, holy God. In exchange for sinful creation, me and you. And His blood sacrifice reaches back into the past and saves those who look forward to that promised one. His blood sacrifice reaches right now in July 31st, August, July 31st, 2016. And His blood sacrifice reaches into the future for those who will be saved, those who will turn to Christ, and also those who are saved. It won't stop. That's how powerful His blood sacrifice is. It reaches back into the past. It plunges me under its river of grace from the present. It washes in the future too. It stretches from eternity to eternity. It's fully sufficient for all mankind. But of course it is only applied to those who fully rely on it. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What degree of love... What depth of love, what desires uh, does this love reveal in the heart of God to bring me to himself at this extreme, the just for the unjust. So there is no new and living way without Messiah's appearance in heaven on our behalf, our intercessor. As we close here, look at this last phrase here in verse 28. And... So not just bearing the sins of many. That's why Jesus came the first time. How is he going to come the second time? Well, he's going to come as judge the second time. He came as savior the first time. He didn't come the first time to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. The second time he's coming as conquering king and judge. But those that are his children, how is he returning? It says this, And unto them that look for him. That should describe every believer, shouldn't it? That look for him. That anticipate, that rejoice, that have that crown of, of hope for his return, that blessed hope. Shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation? And here's the third point. There is no new and living way without Messiah's return. He's not going to leave us all behind, is he? He's going to appear again. And he is going to march into the arena, not as the lamb, but as the conquering lion. And he is going to beckon us to go in with him, into the heavens, the very presence of God, with him, to give us the total fullness of our salvation. We see in part in this life. We experience in part. And positionally, we receive all salvation that we'll ever receive. But he's going to make our, our, our position match with our experience. It's called glorification. To give us the total fullness of our salvation. The very presence of God. Our inheritance. I'd like you to flip over quickly to 1 John 3. Because the appearance of Christ isn't only supposed to give you consolation for the um, craziness of this world. That's part of it. But sometimes that's all we look at. The return of Christ is to motivate us to transact our business till He comes. To push on. To not flatline. To not peter out. But to go full bore. 
Look at 1 John 3. 1 through 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And every man that hath this hope in Him purifieth himself. Even as He is pure. He will appear again. And the author in the book of Hebrews has kind of opened up a scene for us in chapter 2. In verses 10 through 13. We're to live in fullness under that time. We're to live in abundant life in the new and living way. But when that day comes and we return with Christ, the Bible in Hebrews 2, chapter 10 through 13, pictures the Lord Jesus Christ embracing the ones who have been saved, the ones who put their faith in Him, and Him marching into the throne room of God with those who have been ransomed, redeemed, and saying, these are my brothers. This is the product of the finished work. Look in chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. For it became Him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both He that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause He is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare Thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church, while I sing praise unto Thee. And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. You may be wondering what those verses mean. Mean that there will be a day when Jesus stands with His children. That He has returned for. And He has finished all the work. They cannot be made any more holy. They cannot be made any more righteous. The work is done. And so the writer in Hebrews can say, Joyously, gloriously, and unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Now isn't it good news that in, in eternity, in heaven, you'll not have the same worn out physical bodies. That's good news, isn't it? That's not the biggest problem. And Philippians 3 talks about that. But here he says, a return without sin. That's our biggest problem. Unto salvation. Unto rescue. In a changing world, where your circumstances have changed, and maybe even one of the things that, that, is, that is a discouragement to you is your ailing physical body. Maybe it's the circumstances that are going on in the world all around you as it spirals into its, the consequences of its sin. God turns over the world to a reprobate heart. Maybe it's choices that you have made this week or in the past that were poor. And you're discouraged this morning. You are weak. You are struggling. You are faltering, or you keep getting beat by sin. 
and it keeps knocking you down. And you keep getting in, getting back into it, and it takes you down the same beaten path. And it seems hopeless. And this passage tells me that wherever you are, if you're an unbeliever who's trying to find satisfaction in things that don't last, and you realize enough is enough, you come to Jesus. If you are a Christian who claims the name of Jesus Christ and you find yourself so discouraged and trying to find satisfaction in things of this world, you come to Jesus again. You find His rest. You turn from your way to the way. Jesus is what our hearts are really hungering for. Jesus is the one who gives us what our souls are really thirsting for. And perhaps there's someone here who Jesus Christ is not living in you. You are not a child of God. You have not trusted in the one-time sacrifice of Jesus. And you have not entered into the new and living way. And friend, it would be foolish. It would be foolish to hear the clear gospel of the Word of God from this passage and remember it as you are standing before God the judgment, having rejected it. Come to Jesus. Turn from your own way to God's way. Believer, it is just as foolish for you who have been made a child of God to keep going back to those things that He saved you from. To keep going back to those, those, those thoughts that He saved you from. And anchor your hope in the one permanent reality that never changes. That your names are written in heaven. And that changes your right now as well as your future. Let's pray. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if there's one here this morning that say, I am coming to Jesus for the first time. I am trusting His full and complete sacrifice on my behalf and His resurrection to give me new life in Christ today. And that's you. You are coming to Jesus for the first time today. Would you lift your hand? And believers, you never leave Jesus. You never go on to bigger and better things. Come to Jesus. Feast on Jesus. Eat and drink of Jesus. Because He's the bread of life and the living water.